Welcome to Mount Whispers Podcast. This is a show exploring the deeper lessons we learn from the outdoors. If you're here for the first time, welcome. Here I chat to interesting people within mountain culture about the way that the outdoors has transformed them, their most vivid experiences, and how themes like risk, fear, flow, awe, and deeper connection to the more than human world show up in their relationship to the outdoors. And in this episode, I reconnect with Fletcher Tucker. Fletcher is a musician, an earth-based practitioner, and a guide. He and his wife co-founded the organization Wild Tender, which offers immersive wilderness programs that cultivate intimacy with the more-than-human world, connect to wisdom traditions, and nurture human wholeness. If you're listening to this podcast, you've probably felt that revitalizing sense, that grounding, that lightness that you experience when you're in the outdoors. And most people just accept it at that. But really, what that experience is, is an offer of a thread to pull on. And the further you pull on it, the more deeply you find yourself connected to this living natural world. And as we know, from an anatomical perspective, we're still running on the same hardware that we were 200,000 years ago. Our sense organs, our perception, our attention have evolved to help us tune into and more deeply connect and interact with the wonders of the more than human world that we've been deeply part of. And yes, this hardwiring has been adapted to leverage technology and the majority of us now orientate these sense organs to be part of the information economy. But that hardwiring is still there and can be tuned into to tap back into what is lost. As I mentioned, this is the second time Fletcher and I connect. In the first episode, we explore the impact of humanity being severed apart from the more than human world and the practical ways we can reconnect. We can find that deeper connection and find a deeper intimacy with these realms. I'm willing to bet you've felt that experience too, of feeling that deeper connection to nature that's always been there, only to have it jarringly cut away when you return to civilization. Maybe you were a couple of days away on a backpacking or canoe trip and you felt that experience, gazing at the beauty around you and you felt it in every cell of your body. You were so immersed in that moment that the outer edges of what you would typically refer to as yourself began to meld and blend with the environment that you were so taken by. It's that glimmer of connection, that glimmer of intimacy that we're pointing to here. And that's the connection we've been severed from. And I want to make it super clear. I'm not saying we should go back to the Stone Age. I really do appreciate modern dentistry. What I'm pointing to is that most people don't appreciate the significance of what's been lost here. Or that there are methods that we can intentionally practice to regain that connection and experience the meaning that comes from it. And that's the thread we, we pull on and explore in this conversation. Fletcher poetically speaks to the land that he's a steward of, near Big Sur. He described the way he's been getting to know the overlapping ecosystems between the Pacific Northwest and California, but also between lower and higher altitudes. And it's having this awareness, this embodied knowledge of the bioregion that you live in, getting to know the plant ecosystems around you. It's a way of deepening 
this connection. Likewise, further speaks to the deepening connection with particular plant nettle and the significance it has on his Scottish-English ancestry and how he can use that as a cultural bridge to connect more deeply with ancestry, with those who came before you. That and a bunch more, including some of the experiences he facilitates, both animal tracking and in pilgrimage, etc. It's a really great conversation. Let's dive in. Fletcher, welcome back to Mountain Whispers. Thanks, Tim. Happy to be on the line with so, you again. It's been a year and a half since we last spoke. In our last conversation, we really explored the idea of cultivating intimacy with the morning human world and kind of stepped around or explored what a, an animist or kin-based worldview looks like. And I'd love to kind of explore that a little bit further and, and perhaps a good place for us to start is and by you sharing a little bit more about the land that you're on and, and the significance of it. Do you want to introduce that to us? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Sure. Um, well, yeah, let me just stand towards that a little bit. I'm actually sitting outside I'm under my I'm under my overhang, I'm on my front porch, to uh, my wood pile, looking out at some of these some of these wonderful trees that I have as neighbors. So just thinking about who's living here with me, I'm under some branches and boughs of of a very old and stately coast live oak. I can see uh, California bay laurel, big leaf maple, coastal redwood, all right in my immediate vicinity. Riparian sycamore down the hill a little bit. Um, I live up on relatively high on the western slope of this mountain range, the so-called Santa Lucia mountain range, which is really what defines um, what, what we conceive of as Big Sur, this, this Esalen tribal territory that we now call Big Sur, is really defined by this very steep western slope of this mountain range that folds you know, about 30 to 40 to 50 miles east back into an area we now think of as Carmel Valley and, and, and then a little further down the coast into some other California towns. That, that coastal confluence of the water, that big, beautiful, great ancient ancestor of all of ours, the Pacific Ocean, colliding with this, this steep mountain range. It's actually as steep as the Himalayas, uh, as the Himalayas. So range on the west goes typically up to about 30,000 feet. I'm sitting 1,700 feet in this very ecotone where a lot of the kind of the lower elevation plants and animals are colliding with some of the higher elevation plants and animals for the first time. Could you speak, is that the significance of an ecotone is or just outline? Oh, that sure. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. So, so it's an, it's an ecological, it's a term used by ecologists and naturalists and it refers to a place where distinctive ecological niches or habitats um, overlap so a good example would be like a like where like a riparian forest starts to starts to fade into like a chaparral habitat. So those that overlapping, you can kind of think about it like um uh, like a Venn diagram, you know. Like so, there's the two 
the two circles and then the space between those two circles. That's actually called a, a mandorla, by the way. That's a w- word I learned from the great mystic poet Daniel Higgs. But it's the, it's the mandorla, that overlapping space, that's the ecotone. And ecotones are, in, in ecological terms, at least from human perspective, some of the most rich, biodiverse, and um, you know, highly creative habitats. And it's where you see these beings from different different places, you know, coming up to the edges of their comfort zones and interacting for the first and maybe only time with other beings from ecological needs and interacting. To some degree, this place that I live, Big Sur, is is like a giant ecotone because there's actually hundreds of plant and animal species from the south of of this region that extend northward and don't live natively any further north than this mountain range. And then there's hundreds of plant and animal species from the north of this area that extend southward and don't live any further south of this range. So this is like the only place in the world where you would see like a caparral, yucca, and redwood tree growing up where you live. You're great abundance of madrones, I think you call them by their genus, Arbutus, and and they, Big Sur is the, the southern end of their habitat, so they're flourishing in, in tremendous abundance in the northern end where you live, and then they, they extend down this western corridor all the way to here, and then they they stop in this ecotone, this large ecotone. That when it's in that world, there's all these other little worlds nested. Well, people sometimes refer to these you know, ecological habitats or groups of animals or plants as kingdoms, um, which is like a, there's a lovely kind of romantic quality to that, but it's sort of unnecessary imposition of human feudalism as well. Mm. So I've, I've taken to just dropping, just removing the G and I call them kingdoms. So these are, these are these various kingdoms overlapping. I love that. Yeah, yeah. They're special, and they're special places and they, they just feel good. Qualities of aliveness and creativity and, and beauty and abundance that, that human people are just so drawn to. And we can feel them. I really, you know, I know from taking hundreds of different people, hundreds and hundreds of people out into these wildernesses that when we cross into ecotones, people notice, even if they don't know anything about natural history or ecology, we're already attuned to these. Yeah, and, and I think that. It is is a central part of what this exploration of, of Mountain Whispers is. And a lot of listeners are, are similar to me in that they didn't have an intentional relationship with the more than human world. They spend a lot of time outdoors and know it revitalizes them. There's not actually sure what goes into that. And I think right. the way you describe those ecotones just almost points to the the culture of it you know it's it's easy for humans to be able to identify kind of the strength of a culture or a container that they're, they're part of you know a, a group of friends and the energy that that comes with and comes up as you shared those is there, there's a similar component to that with the, the more than human life that is around you ah yeah yeah yeah, I've come to really, I've come to really believe that, you know, mostly based on experience. But, but yeah, I, I, um, I love that. I, I think that's a, I think that's an excellent reframing. I think it has a lot of value to, um, 
to regard these other than human congregations as you know communities and mm. and to allow them allow them you know afford them the uh, what shall we say well really kind of in some ways it's just affording ourselves like qualities of like spaciousness and and um non-judgment and um uh, humility to accept that you know there very well may be cultures at play here i mean of course like even from even from like a a very hardline western materialist science perspective like there's there's plenty of examples of 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 animal life you know non-human animal life exhibiting culture you know certain like hunting cultures of orcas for example or the way that different um different primates <clears throat> behave and strategies of of food gathering and social strategies that are unique from one another social structures but yeah i mean i'm always i always rest on the side of more nuance more mystery more possibility and just why of course why couldn't i expand that to include uh, the big leaf maples and and the bay trees and whatever type of culture they're creating together, you know, or the the madrone and the and the the redwood that are seldom together, and they have this unique now they get to have a unique relationship that is going to um, going to generate um, something that is beyond my awareness, beyond my ability to perceive and certainly codify in words, but I have no doubt that it's. Um, Precious and unusual and complex and subtle. Yeah, is that making sense? It is. It absolutely is. I'm curious and how long you've been on this path for us, so developing this kinship. Right? And I ask that because it's only fairly recently for me, and I still find myself constantly at the edge of, of my senses growing sharper. And, and I use that language because I think it, it's easy to not in a modern world to not sense into any of this because of the way our senses have been blunted by modernity. And it is quite a this patient process that requires a, a very significant shift in thinking that I, I constantly find myself up in tension against and just right. existing in a late stage capitalism world. I, I'm curious, how long have you been developing a relationship specifically with this land in Islam? Yeah, yeah. I've been I've been living down here full time since 2010. Been been 14 years, uh, and that's certainly the most concentrated time. I, mean, I feel the benefits of. I didn't grow up far away from here. I grew up in a little town called Pacific Grove. We used to spend quite a bit of time camping down in in so-called Big Sur in my youth. You know, and then also doing things with Boy Scouts and stuff down here. So it, it already felt like a place significance to me. You know, Robin Wall Kimmerer has this beautiful um, uh, expression. Or I encountered it from her, but I believe it's traditional amongst the, amongst the tribal relatives. This idea of like places, the places that raise us, as opposed to just the people that raise us. And I've long regarded this the Big Sur River as, as like a place that has raised me. I spent a lot of time in there as a child. I spent a lot of time with my daughter in and around and among that river now. And, and there's qualities of like familiarity and that 
I haven't had to work for at all. They just are, they just are present, and they're present from I think from this from this formative contact in my my youth and my childhood. But but for me, the the process and the practice originated um, in, most distinctly when I actually came to the Esalen Institute and I, I came down here to do a regenerative agriculture apprenticeship on the, on the farm and garden at the Esalen Institute. It's not something that they offer currently, but for a good number of years, it was a really powerful, beautiful apprenticeship program in organic agriculture, regenerative agricultural practices. And so, yeah, I was really curious and interested in plants and, and learning more about farming and gardening and, and also just becoming like a more self-sufficient person. So I came to do that, and I found that my, my curiosity and affinity was just always expanding in this sort of spiral pattern out from that specific local patch of earth that I spent a couple of years, you know, with my hands in the soil every day, growing food, planting seeds, harvesting, and cultivating, fertilizing every day over and over, you know, in contact with this local patch of earth, which, you know, uh, needs to be said, I think, and and adds some depth to the story, was, was and is an incredibly sacred place to the Esalen tribe. And, and the soil that I was working to grow vegetables for the Institute is full of cell fragments, and even tool fragments from the Esalen people, from their their cell mounds, their middens, and their at their historic village site there. So, so this particular local patch of earth, which has this tremendously deep, powerful root going back thousands of years in human history to a time of like almost unimaginable profundity in terms of like kinship and land connectedness, and then feeling these concentric circles just rippling out from that place further and further out to include more and more of this wild landscape and this deep and mysterious backcountry and all these wild plants and animals that I had as neighbors. Yeah, like answering a call, you know, being in some ways it almost felt like being beckoned into contact and in other ways there was like a very necessary striving, you know, to like force myself to get into these uncomfortable situations and, you know, rapidly skillful in terms of finding my way and surviving and feeling safe in the wild and overcoming a really serious poison oak allergy, for example, and <laughs> things like that. Another point of tension that I'm curious to hear from you is um, just in general, the way that modernity has been conditioned for convenience, how... Uh, it feels like a living as wild as you live, and maybe you could reintroduce your living situation. How do you view just the amount of calories that needs to be burned to survive in your lifestyle? <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, I mean, it's not it's not crazy. I mean, I hate to I hate to dispel the romance too much, but I mean, I'm living in a modern house. I have electricity. I have I have running water. I mean, the water comes from a spring, but it, but it runs through a mile of pipe, you know, through the wilderness to, to get into 30,000-gallon storage tanks. And I have satellite internet and, and a laptop computer and all kinds of stuff like that. It's, 
it's really just a matter of just being pretty far away from a town. You know, I mean, it's about a, it's, it's an hour and a half drive each way to get some groceries. So, so that's a whole day, you know. And so it's just a matter of just planning, having a well-stocked larder because our, our road goes out in the winter, you know, for at least a few days every year, sometimes a couple months. And because of landslides and there's a nice big bag of rice in there and some garbanzo beans. Mm. And, and then, yeah, we have a kitchen garden. And I'm on a historic homestead that belonged to original. I mean, originally this is Esalen land, of course. And then one of the first settlers here was Jaime de Anglo, who's an ethno-linguist and poet who I really greatly admire creatively. And uh, and so remnants of his original orchard, and then more fruit trees, forty to fifty fruit trees, and so that takes the edge off a little bit, you know. Just knowing, well, most times of the year we have fruit, and but, but I would say, you know, I mean, I feel like maybe the deeper current of your question is, I I have the enormous privilege of living in um in a in like a much larger community of beings because of this intention to live a little bit less of a convenient life out, you know, right up against this expansive wilderness. It's a little homestead carved out into in this wilderness on all sides. So, yeah, I have, a, I have a bobcat that walks through where I'm sitting right now and an old fox, old um, coyote that just yesterday morning was picking and was eating all the apples that have finally fallen from from the oldest apple tree on the property. It's beautiful and meaningful to me because what I wanted to think that I've chosen to do with my life is to really try and attempt to help people become aware of these unobserved organizing principles that are that are that are reinforcing mythologies of severance and separation and isolation and anthropocentrism, human centered thinking and ways of being and and step into a more reciprocal kinship based animistic territories of the mind and spirit and um this place helps me do that because it because the the relationship is not relationships that i'm cultivating are daily they're not not a weekend practice and you know i feel so much empathy and I'm, I'm keenly aware of the reality that that's not realistic for most people, and I'm totally aware of like the privilege and the blessing that I I get to take that on, and for me, part of that privilege and that blessing then turns into responsibility. Like, I don't want to hoard that spiritual fruit. I want to offer it back to the world. Music through, mm-hmm. through workshops, through you know making myself available for conversations like this. You know, working with people one on one in programs and you know, writing, doing, doing all the things I can do to just try and, um, you know, like I say, not hoard the experience, not allow it to become a stagnant pool, but allow myself to just be like one healthy threat of this dream, so to speak. No, I can feel the energetics of the way you're trying to share what you're getting from the land. I'm curious if you could speak to any of the folk transitions of, of kinship or, or practices you've learned from your ancestral lineage and how you're able to apply it to, to this relationship. Absolutely. I mean, that's definitely been really up for me for the last, for a while, for at least at least a decade. I've been 
had a lot of curiosity around that because you know I'm a I'm part of this like European diaspora, you know, of of Euro descendant people whose ancestors, you know, came came to this continent as as, as settlers and colonizers, and um, and and that's real. And there's you know there's some there's like some measure of of um, of darkness and and um, sort of offering to reconcile in that both like caused and experienced. You know, I mean, for instance, my I, it seems very likely that my Swedish ancestors, which is the bulk of my ancestry, were were coming here, you know, to flee famine. You know, it's like that's a it's a deep ancestral wound, and then and then their presence here inevitably displaces native people, and that is another wound, you know, wounding. So yeah, it's there's a lot of. I guess I'm just setting this all up just to acknowledge that there's, there's, there's like so much, so many questions and so much work to be done around all of this. Uh, and I think there's amazing people doing, you know, approaching this from a lot of different angles. But something that's been important to me is like finding a way to exist on this land, which is stolen land, where my ancestors do not hail from, but finding ways to build kinship that have... Um, that feel pure to some degree and have like a, a resonance or a connection within my own lineage that I can that I can properly own and uh, investigate and expand and cultivate. And the wonderful thing to say about that is just that this northern hemisphere that that my ancestors were in and and the Esalen people live in and you know is full of um, amazing plant teachers that span the entire Northern Hemisphere. So I've spent a lot of time focusing on learning about and from plants that are native to my current home place and native to my ancestral home places. And with a lot of curiosity about how Esalen folks have interacted and continue to interact with these beings and how my ancestors interact and then and then like where do they cross over how do they diverge you know i'm talking in total abstracts here but like there are i'll just maybe just jump into a few plants if you feel like that that's please where i can go in yeah so i mean nettle is a is a, is a great example and nettle is called nettle because um because my my celtic and nordic ancestors fibers from nettle into net are it's our net making plant most of the most of the um, most of the rope, or really all of the rope in in and twine in Europe until flax and cotton were introduced, was made from nettle. And nettle super abundant here in in Big Sur, growing in all the riparian zones. You probably have a bunch of nettle up there in Squamish, right? Absolutely, we do. Yeah, yeah. And so, so my last name Tucker. It's like a Scottish English old profession name, and it's the people who would pound nettle cloth with river rocks in rivers to soften it because it's very coarse. You weave from nettle, it becomes very coarse. Eventually, it became a job of people pounding and softening wool that people were introduced to the British Isles. But so there it is, it's remnant in my own name. It's much deeper kinship with a specific neighbor, a specific being, Esalen people have been using for fiber and medicine since time immemorial, and my ancestors have been using fiber and medicine and food. 
feels very awesome and and also like something I can really sink my teeth in, something that I can explore really deeply without appropriating and without potentially doing harm. Yeah, and they, I mean, the planning stages for a book specifically about plants that have been important to people as a way of allowing us, um, you know, human human folks in the northern hemisphere anyway. You know, I don't intentionally leave out the southern hemisphere, but it's just incredibly different, um, mm-hmm. incredibly different communities of plants. You know, and it's not where I live. So, but just thinking about these plant people, these plant teachers, non-human subjectivities, like cultural bridges, they can, they, you know, nettle or oak or elderberry, they can, they can bring me into deep, deep contact with my own ancestors. And they can bring you into deep, deep contact with the ancestors of this land simultaneously. And then the land itself and, and all her other things in there. I'm excited about it as a modality. And I'm excited to kind of explore it more and eventually present it. Yeah, I love that idea of, of plants as cultural bridges. I'm not sure if you've come across um, the thinker Joshua Michael Shrees. He has the Emerald podcast. Have you come across it before? What's the podcast called? The Emerald Podcast. Oh, I've listened to a couple of those. I listened to his his uh, beautiful rant on animacy as normative consciousness. Yeah. Yeah. No, I have. I, um, I yeah. It's, that's probably the podcast I recommend to the most people when I I try and speak to the the kind of intentional study that I'm trying to or path that I'm trying to walk in and deepening understanding of this but an idea that comes up is he um he speaks to how in modernity we're obsessing over the individual there's an episode called the revolution will not be psychologized and it's Mm -hmm. talking about how psychological language is is pervading every part of of culture and and one of the key challenges of it is that it puts everything on the individual and whereas for the vast majority of our species history it was never set on the individual we were deeply right. part of community and i think right. again one of these early practices is just tuning into our, our lineage or our ancestors and the blood sweat and tears that went into with the position that that we're in as a way for just being able to shoulder the load a yeah. little bit more easily and i love how these yeah. cultural bridges can can support that yeah yeah, I yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting you say that, and definitely brings there's like a quality of grief that it brings up for me when you when you start to talk about that. Just the feeling of like, um, yeah, just how profound that absence is, you know, mm-hmm. how pro- how profound and frankly intentional the erasure has been from you know from modernity. And something I thought of actually when you were talking about honing your senses and and just be and just like know your own process of kinship unfurling so because I, you know I, I really i feel like we are born for it like what we're born for the conditioning of our of our species through deep time and it's also like the reality of you know being being these high super curious animals you know and and relational animals like we're we're super relational which isn't to say i don't believe other animals and, and life forms are not relational. I think they are, but I think it's fair to say, like, we're really relational. And, um, but then, then, there's this 
stumbling block, right? Like, well, shit, I have to do this whole thing myself. You know, like, mm-hmm. I had to figure this out myself. And, you know, that's true and it's not true. Like, there's books, there's other people thinking about this stuff, there's, there's, you know, there's all this kind of what I like to think of as, like, remote teachers, you know? Not necessarily, like, people we know personally, but they've offered their, like, pearls of wisdom out and we, and we can find them. That's not the same as thousands of years of land connectedness and, you know, cultural practice and cultural relationality and awareness and love, you know, for a place and for these other beings and respect and regard, like, just not the same. So I think I mentioned something about this in the last podcast, but I think that's an important thing to acknowledge if for no other reason just so that we can return with some qualities of like forgiveness and gentleness for ourselves you know as we respond to these yearnings or to these deep wounds that you know many of us don't even know we have because there's no system set up within eternity to like address them or afford space but but as we you know as we become aware of that wounding as we become aware of these yearnings as we start to cultivate these relationships to just yourself with loving kindness and, and know like um, it's a very different thing to, to try and do this on your own and I do think that there is for me there has been a kind of a balm burning toward my ancestors remembering mm-hmm. I don't know their names you know you know the ones that were land connected it wasn't that long ago it was probably like 300 years ago or less you know that's that's nothing like, you know, this oak tree next to my house is more than 300 years old, you know? I mean, and the time span of this exquisite planet that we live on, like, that's, that's a joke, you know? That's, a, that's an eye blink or less. So, and yet, the severance is profound, right? Because it's, yeah. it is, because it's so total. It was mm-hmm. so, it was so um, apocalyptic, so catastrophic. And yet, you know, like I say, like I can, with curiosity and love and respect, turn towards those ancestors that were land connected, that did live in kinship, that did have totemic relationships with other than human beings, lived long days, a lot of like diversity of of contact and um, fixed on solace, knowing that they really lived. And I live now because of them, because of the their love and their sacrifices and their dedication and devotion and their ingenuity and because of their connection to place, you know? Like, you and I are only alive because we have ancestors that were adequately connected to their place and they were more likely than adequately connected. They were profoundly connected, making their living exclusively from, you know, places that many of which are very hard to survive in. And that's true of every single person on this planet. I feel like what we're we're speaking to of continuing to build an intimacy with the more than human world or continuing to bridge that severance that's been conditioned to us. I see this connection as, like you said, one of the bombs. And I think your your, um, offerings and workshops and and trips you lead are kind of pointing to this, this practice in an experiential way as well. Yeah, I'm curious if you want to speak to whichever calls you more wild pilgrimage or, or stories of the land and how that is cultivating something similar i mean i feel like i could just talk 
you know, with a little bit of brevity about both because they're 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 pretty different. There's a, there's this quality of immediacy in this like building of awareness and relationship that is so specific in stories of the land that it's it's really easy to talk about it because it's a it's an it's an animal tracking incentive being taught by by my animal track Megan Waller Murphy and um, I'll be there as a co guide and it's um, an opportunity to spend time in in here in Big Sur. It's it's going to be situated at this incredible reserve. 9,000 acres or so reserves are owned by the UC. They, there's no settlements on it. It's just wild land that's used for ecological research. And we get to go there and camp out and and look for animal track and sign and into the stories of the landscape that are being reported by the land and, and written to some degree by the other than human co-inhabitants of the land, the animals, the non-human animals of the land. And stepping into animal tracking and, and looking for signs of animals as just a way of expanding our awareness and our curiosity and affinity for more than human worlds. The very immediate remedy for this, these qualities of isolation and loneliness, right? Because there's sexy signs all around us in wild spaces in particular, but in urban and suburban spaces too, that like we are co-inhabitants of place. We're not, not the sole inhabitants of place. You know, the fact is, though, that a fox or a mountain lion are much better at sensing me from a distance than I am sensing them, so they often will vanish. You know, the number of times you see a wild animal are quite few in one's life, but their but tracks and their signs are everywhere, and they, they hold stories about their lives and goings on, the spirit behind, you know, away from our prying eyes stories that are playing out in the landscape. There's a great line, actually, on your website, speaking to it, that I'd, I'd love to read out. Written, sure, please. When we focus our awareness on animal tracks and signs, we step into the timeless realm of our respective land-connected ancestors. Our imagination and senses come alive as we pursue the mysteries of place and uncover subtle and complex narratives in the land. Our sense of self expands as we track both inner and outer landscapes. Nice to hear it in your voice. <laughs> I like I'd, I'd take that workshop. That sounds great. But inner and outer landscapes really resonates to me. I'm wondering if anything comes to mind specifically of, I guess, a, a connection that you've built or if built with one of your wild kin through the art of tracking, is there any of those magical experiences that, that come to mind? Well, I mean, there's just a, a very immediate one that I don't know, maybe it's too prosaic or something, but it had meaning to me, which is just this coyote that I saw yesterday morning eating our apples. Like, I I saw his scat at the fringes of our you know, on these other like roads and trails near the property where you live with apple and persimmon skin in them. I've been seeing that for well, a week, maybe months, and aware that he's been here in our, you know, right in our front yard, so to speak, secretly moving with his own relationship to these trees in this place, but I, but totally outside of my actual visual awareness. But there was the sign, right? His scat, which had peels of of fruit that are not native um, and getting to know him and knowing, oh, well, he likes apples and he likes Hachia persimmons too, which are, you know, not everybody's cup of tea. They've got a lot of tannic sharpness in them. And 
and just that immediately building a kind of affinity. It's like I'm feeding myself and my family with this food, and he's feeding himself and perhaps his family with the same food. And then I got to see him yesterday morning for the first time at work. Kind of an older, stately gentleman of the coyotes, a little bit of gray running down his back, and he walks with a bit of a limp. Lives a life full of agency and awareness and, and complexity, and you know, it's at its hardships and its, and its abundance. Mm. What do you think his, his recognition or acknowledgement of you was? I had someone on a little while ago who, who told this beautiful story about spending an extensive time in the wilderness and noticing when they came in, there was complete separateness for sure. And, and by the time they were, I don't know, 10, 20, 30 days in, the the animals and wildlife were were not afraid of them anymore. There was a different belonging. I'm yeah. curious what kind of relationship you feel with the, those yeah, I mean, I absolutely can relate to that idea, and I have my own experiences like that of like prolonged time in wilderness, and also I mentioned on our last podcast my experience of the sit spot with the kestrels that were that became uh, kindred to me and and trusted me as just like a peaceful community member. My impression from this specific coyote, and also you know, the, also the bobcat, and there's a fox and a skunk that regularly visit near our house is that they're they're pretty comfortable with us. They just they are aware of our daily rhythms when we're most active outside and less active outside and they know we're here and they don't seem particularly fussed about it. I mean we are delighted to see them and quietly, you know, offering them our blessings and our 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 loving kindness, you know, from a distance whenever we see them. I definitely noticed I noticed that the particular coyote, my daughter did, had a little flare up of, of of noisy energy and he he stopped eating for a minute and sat up and looked at our house with his ears pointed towards us and took pause and then returned back to eating once he decided it was have anything to do with him. Yeah. So but but yeah, I mean it's I don't can't pretend to know their minds, so I I can't say, you know. I have a feeling that I hope that they are happy we're here. I've definitely had feelings from other than human beings of like a a sense of acknowledgement, um, sense of recognition, even qualities of remembering. When I first moved to this ridge, I became aware of a beautiful coast live oak that was just making an incredible abundance of acorns. And I gathered a group of friends together to, to collect acorns and and we're going to process them and eat them, which, of course, is traditional practice amongst the Esalen folks, but it's also traditional practice amongst my, my Celtic ancestors. Um, a, lot of, a lot of eating of acorns in the, what's now thought of as the British Isles and throughout Western Europe um, historically, so, yeah, within my ancestral practice. But the tree was old enough to have existed to live through and produce acorns through an era when settlers were here, non-native settlers, and during Esalen times, times of these are still Esalen times, but times when the Esalen tribe were the were the primary human population here. And my feeling that I got from this oak tree was, uh, it was a it was a kind of a where have you been sort of quality to emanating from 
her. And there was rap in that kind of a, almost a scolding or a quality of grief, which I, I'm open to. I'm open to exploring this from any direction. I'm open to the possibility that was entirely manifest in my own mind or, or was a feeling that I was bringing to it that I didn't realize I had. And I'm open to the, the very real possibility that this is, I was actually attuning to like a, a kind of a thought form or a feeling state from my kinfolk, you know, from this oak tree. Either way, however you want to orient towards it, I think it has value because there, or it has value to me. And that was this idea or this acknowledgement and this way of, of regarding myself and my presence and my actions in the landscape of just acknowledging the possibility that maybe all these other beings miss me too. Maybe the landscape misses us human people and these oak trees miss being tended and cared for and having bell mounds built up around them and their, their lichen scraped off and fires built to fumigate them and songs and dances being done to around them to you know to celebrate their bounty in whatever cultural frame makes sense for you know the people doing it my ancestors or, or someone else's it makes sense to me that they would we're talking about thousands of years of interrelating and for me like just accepting that as possibility or even orienting towards that as like the way I choose to see it is deepens its quality of reciprocity. It makes towards an opportunity for things to not be as expressive and human centered. Absolutely. And and that's kind of one of the central ideas that I'm trying to present or, or make and knowing that uh, listeners are sit on, on various places within what I'd call the, the woo-woo spectrum, is that even if you're you're not, you're in the position that this is all in your head, it mm-hmm. doesn't change the fact that it reliably fills one with meaning and connection to the environment that they're in. Right. Yes, exactly. Yep. I mean, if it's all in your head, you still have to be in your head, right? You've got you've to gotta exist in this world, and you... Yeah, how do you want it? How do you, do you want that to feel like? What do you want that to be like? And and uh, you know, I don't think anyone can say that it's all in your head to such a degree that they believe that their actions have no impact. You know, and this is this so you know this is our chance to like this is our chance. We're the ones who are alive right now, and um, you know maybe we get to maybe we'll be good ancestors too. So yeah, it's, for me, it's not that important whether or not you go all in in terms of belief. It's, my orientation is one of just like embracing mystery. I don't know, and surely ever gonna know, and that's fine. Just, uh, but uh, I want to live. I want to live my life guided by like principles of, you know, that have heart and meaning, and hopefully, uh, like that, you know, benefit my descendants and benefit you know the more than human. And also, cultivate qualities of aliveness, awareness. Fletcher, I'm aware of of time here, so I'd love to, before we go, just touch on either the wild pilgrimage, but also your experience in in going full circle with the the Shinto pilgrimage you experienced ten years ago. Yeah, yeah, sure. I think, yeah, I think we can hang on for a little bit longer. I'm not not seeing any signs from inside the house that I'm urgently needed about wild pilgrimage and pilgrimage in general. 
I think I'm just going to talk for a second about my Sinto, my Sinto pilgrimage and how that naturally flows in. So I, 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 in 2013, I was on tour in Japan. I was playing music in Japan for the first time and so far my only time doing that. It was radical and cool and totally different and real honor to get to go over there in that way. And, um, I decided at the end of the tour that I was going to head out to the Kitsunabe Peninsula and do the Monokoto pilgrimage, which is this ancient Shinto walking pilgrimage that, like, all the icons of, of ancient, land, you know, Matuabato uh, and Okusai and all these different poets and artists and people did. That used to be quite a long pilgrimage that was, could hike all the way from Kyoto to to the um, Monokoto Temple Complex in the Kitanabe Peninsula without having to walk through cities or towns. There used to be kind of like a huge wilderness corridor that you could you could walk through in there, Shinto shrines dotted throughout this. But now it's limited to about a two-days walk where you, you walk all day through the forest, and then there's a little farming village where you can stay, and then you continue the next day to walk all day through the forest, and then you end up at the Monokoto Temple complex, hopefully by nightfall. And so, yeah, I, I took this on. Um, I did it in the summer, which Japanese folks don't do because it's extremely hot and humid. It was basically like backpacking in an hour. But um, it was a tremendously beautiful, instructive experience full of very numinous and mysterious contact and conversations and interplay with the land and with animals and plants living in the land really just had this very potent effect on me. felt and feels very true to me that 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 place, that that trail, that that corridor has been shaped by thousands of years of ritual contact, ceremonial contact, over and over again. People coming to this trail in ceremony and it being something, you know, people don't walk there you know, they don't walk their dogs there. It's 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 just used for pilgrimage and has been for thousands of years. It's difficult to describe feeling because it doesn't really exist in the word world. Suffice to say, it had had mystical. There were mystical qualities to the actual land, the actual landscape that I could just sort of step into and didn't expect. It was a big surprise for me, and so. Yeah, it changed it changed my way of relating to practice and to place. And I returned home to Baker Coast with this feeling that I wanted to carry that numinous quality, that quality of ritual and ceremony to the, the trail networks of, of this landscape with the intention of establishing pilgrimage that rich in animistic totemic nodes, these specific places that I could revisit and visit over time where kinship would blossom and flourish, and mystical and numinous qualities would also live by virtue of this ceremonial interplay. That's related to um, to my personal work in this land, and then it's also related to my work in the way that I bring people as a guide to wild tender just uh, to clarify, it sounded like there was, was there a feeling of it coming full circle recently or, or how did, knowing that was 10 years ago, how did that experience 
evolve with time for you? Yeah, it did. It really dawned on me. Um, dawned on me this this last. Um, uh, I did a I did a transverse crossing of these mountains in October, with a with a, a, a slightly more ceremonial intention. It was it was around Sawain, around the the Halloween season with a group, and we were specifically tuning into like totemic relationships with plants, carrying a specific plant with us each day, using the landscape as a metaphor for stages of life and phases of, you know, stages within ceremony. You know, when we descended into the cold river valley, that was when we were contemplating like relationships with the ceremonial underworld, things like that. It was, it was rich in its rituality, which is, you know, appears in varying degrees in the, in the work I do with the public, the public facing work. Um, But I think through that cultivation, it, and and just having a very beautiful and profound year of contact with these specific lively places in the backcountry that you know yeah it just hit me like a bolt from the blue I was like oh this this comes from Monocoto this this is this I was answering a call that I didn't I didn't fully didn't fully hadn't fully become aware of the source of the call. And the call was from this shape made inside me after bearing witness to the way the landscape and the subjectivities of the land had been shaped in relationship to ritual, to ceremonial consciousness of practices over time. Now I've started to be like, well, you know, that's, I, haven't, I haven't been hiking these trails for 3,000 years, but, but 14 years is it's enough time to start to, to start taste a little bit of that that ceremonial impression that we leave behind especially with particular sites and individuals and then of course i mean we're remiss to say that like i mean we're i live in a place that has nine thousand at least nine thousand years of deep human history with the Esalen people and they had their own exquisitely beautiful and intricate and complex and and magical relationships with these trails and these, these places too but you know, even though I I have a wonderful relationship with the Esalen tribe, that's that's not exactly available to me because it's my cultural not my cultural inheritance. You know, so I you know I'm I'm traveling through their sacred wilderness with their permission, and I'm and I'm I'm making it sacred for myself in my own way. I'm sacralizing it for myself in my own way, mm-hmm. and other people into that into that awareness and those qualities. And, and speak to that. How, how do you apply those principles or, or, or that sensitivity in wild pilgrimage? And then how do you also integrate gestalt practice into making that transformative? Yeah, well, pilgrimage is a journey with intention, right? And qualities of, of sacrility. It's to set aside sacred time from ordinary life in order to um, journey in order to make space for inner and outer journeys. Um, I mean, I think that's the essence of pilgrimage. And so we, so we are like presenting people in a, in a really open way, you know, affording, just, you know, affording people to kind of come to these ideas from whatever orientation is, is right for them. It's not a prescriptive 
way. I mean, if we say, in fact, within Gestalt, one of the tenets of Gestalt is maximum choice, minimum coercion. You know, that's one of the one of the orienting principles in the Gestalt modality, and and I, it's real. That's a really important part of Wild Tender as well. It's like I will present these ideas in a way that they make sense to me, and then hopefully I've presented them in a way where there's enough base around them that you can that you can find the way that they fit into your making of the world, you know. Um, but in its simplest sense, yeah, just asking people to, um, to set aside some time to journey with intention and reverence through this very wild place. And then this, that particular trip, Wild Pilgrimage, we, we travel through the wild for, for uh, four days and five nights. Was that right? Five days and four nights, one way or the other, for about four or five days, and then we and then we actually we conclude at the Ashland Institute for a weekend of like um, integration and rejuvenation, and we we use the Gestalt tradition, which is the wisdom tradition that this form originates from Ashland, the Ashland Institute, as a frame, and so Gestalt is. I've been practicing it for 15 years, or studying it, and and being a practitioner for say, yeah, 14 or 15 years, but I still sometimes hard to talk about, but it's a, it's a psych, it's essentially like a wisdom tradition or like a psychological modality that allows us to um, tune into our awareness, non-judgmental awareness through certain practices and understand ourselves through our relationships. So it's an, the wisdom tradition is a practice that is about examining our relationships and understanding the self through relationships. And so our work with Wild Tender when we are involved specifically in Gestalt and otherwise is, is about understanding ourselves in part through our relationship with our relationships that expand beyond the circles of human, right? So our relationships to place, to landscape, plants, to animals, to stones, boulders, to the elemental beings. And then, and then within that, uh, the blossomings of understandings of the way we relate to ourselves and to our human communities, interpersonal and intrapersonal and an eco-personal self-awareness. So yeah, so I think there's this, there can be this sort of way of regarding self-awareness, the kind of like endless navel-gazing that is like commodified by like a health and wellness arm of the, of the, you know, the legions of late-stage capitalism, you know. Um, but there's also another way of thinking about it that really is about freedom and liberation, moving beyond what is, moving beyond habituation to choice. And some of that habituation is like the cultural habituations that we've already talked about, about like, you know, this, these always using isolation and, and human-centeredness and uh, or being habituated into those qualities, being a space and awareness, self-awareness around those qualities, then, then you're afforded a choice. And that's really like, you know, it's about liberation. It's like a, it's a form of liberation from these organizing principles, these, these forms of, of uh, domination that are largely unobserved. No, I, I can see the signal in, in what you speak of, speak of around freedom of choice as opposed to or... Uh, in, in tension with habituation and being able to identify what those organizing principles that become a lot more clear when when breaking out into these practices and how they also forefront 
some of the patterns that we've been habituated to in modernity. Right, right, right. Which ultimately, you know, I mean, I'm not like a, I'm not like obsessed with free will or something, but ultimately, like that, that is, that is a barrier of free will. And I think Alan Watts said, actual free will implies total knowledge itself. You know, it's just like, that's Paul order, total knowledge of self, but you kind of see what he's getting at, right? It's like, if you don't know, don't know yourself, then, then how many choices are you actually making? So, but, you know, from what, my perspective and the perspective of my work with Wild Tender, it's like, we don't, we don't know the self in isolation. And in Gestalt, they say, um, you can't know the self in isolation, that the phrase they use is it takes two to know one. You understand the self through relationship. And in fact, the self is actually composed of relationships. And, you know, within the frame, the worldview and the work that I'm curious about and cultivating relationships that extend well beyond this narrow bandwidth of human to human out into, you know, this great family of beings. I think that's a great way to to wrap things up. Fletcher, thank you so much for your, your time. It's um, been a joy sitting in this space in conversation with you. And yeah, I really sure. enjoyed talking to you too. Thank you so much for inviting me back to do it. It feels like it, yeah, it feels um, uh, like an honor and and um, and a joy. Thanks for listening to Mountain Whispers. There's an awful lot of really great listening content out there, so it means a lot that you chose this one. If Fletcher's work speaks to you and you feel called to practice the art of intimacy with the more-than-human world, Fletcher's running two incredible immersions this northern spring. So, as we kind of alluded to in our conversation, Stories of the Land is an immersive animal tracking workshop that's taking place in Big Sur, California from April 4th to the 7th and then wild pilgrimage is a backpacking journey that concludes on the coastal grounds of the Islin institute and that runs from april 29th to may the 5th there's also a number of other immersions planned 2024 that you can check out on his website wildtender i'll link that in the show notes i'm definitely going to try and make it there myself at some point and there will also be a number of other links listed in the show notes there if you enjoyed this episode please leave a review on whatever platform you're listening to or even better share it with a friend look out for another episode this time next month so much love take care